0: Hello and welcome to episode 111 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Okay, well, in our notes today, things we want to make you aware of includes a number of conferences. Uh, first one I'll mention is the Findevers West Coast Conference. That's happening Tuesday, October 18th through Wednesday, Wednesday October 19th, 2016, Uh, our very own Timothy Baldridge will be presenting. This is a technology uh, conference about uh, the the technology side of uh, fintech. Um, So if you happen to be in the uh, Santa Clara area where that was being held and you can get there, then uh, have a look. Look for the FindeVR, that's F-I-N-D-E-V-R, conference, you'll find that. Of course, I can't not mention Euroclosure. That's coming up soon now, uh, Tuesday, October 25th and 26th. Tickets are still available at this point, but uh, quite a few have already been sold. We're getting into the later part of ticket sales, so um, if you're planning to go to Euroclosure in Bratislava, Slovakia, you should definitely go and pick up tickets about those. You'll find those uh, at the Euroclosure website. Um, Michael Nygaard, who's been on the show a bunch of times, one of my favorite guests will be presenting at the DevOps Enterprise Summit in San Francisco Monday, November 7th. That's the conference that is this Monday, November 7th through Thursday, November 10th. Um, that, again, is in San Francisco. So you can look for uh, the DevOps Enterprise Summit if you want to go to San Francisco and hear Mike Nygaard talk. He's always uh, great to listen to, as if you've listened to the show, you're well aware. Uh, let's see. Um at the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference also in San Francisco, around the same time. So Sunday, that's actually Sunday, November 13th, and Monday, November 14th, uh, we will be holding a a training course, two-day training course, also given by Mike Nygaard. Uh, Title is Architecture Without an End State. This is not a closure-specific course. Um, Don't really have the space to describe it here. Again, look for the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference and you'll be able to find details about it on their website. Um, finally, I'll mention the Closure Conj. Um, no, that's coming up. That's going to be Thursday, December 1st through Saturday, December 3rd. Um, I'll be there. <laughs> I'll be teaching the Intro to Closure course immediately beforehand, uh, the two days beforehand. Uh, you can find all the information about that at the uh, Closure Conj uh, website at closure-conj.org. Um, always fun. Um, just a great time. One of my favorite things during the year is to go to that. Uh, tickets are also still available for that, but <laughs> um, there's no guarantee that will remain true forever. So we're about two months away. Would not be a terrible idea to go and, and get your tickets for that. Um, head on down to Austin and join us there. Um, I think that's all I have for announcements, so we'll go ahead and go on. Uh, c- upcoming now is episode 111 of The Cognicast. Excellent, excellent, excellent! All right, then, here we go. All right, welcome everybody. Today is Friday, July 29th, 2016, and this is the Cognicast. I am very pleased today to welcome back to the show two friends of mine, uh, Alan DiPert and Misha Niskin. Uh, welcome to the show, guys.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Uh,
0: so they are both developers um, at Adzerk. Uh, Alan is a former coworker of mine. Um, And I will point out he was the first ever guest on the Cognicast coming up on six years ago now, although we never actually aired that episode. Alan is one of the uh, <laughs> one of the mysterious lost episode guests, so in fact, I think Alan, I think you may have been the guest on every episode that we never aired for one reason <laughs> or another <laughs> Anyway, it's been quite a while since we've had you on, but we're really, really glad that you're back. Uh, to talk to us again and super excited to talk to Misha as well Uh, you guys have done some really cool stuff that we will get into but before we do that uh, we are going to uh, throw to you uh, the question that we always throw to our guests um, which is at the beginning we ask people to relate some experience of art whatever that means to them and even though you told me approximately 30 seconds ago which one of you was going to do this question versus the one we asked at the end. I've already forgotten, so uh, w- which of you said that you would like to answer the art question? Hey, this is Misha.
1: I will, I'll do it. Excellent. So uh, two things, actually. I saw the other day um, a picture of a newborn baby's skull without any flesh on it, and seeing how the teeth are, you know, kind of queued up inside the jaw. Man, I cannot get it out of my head. I don't know if this is exactly art, but... Man it's an image that I can't stop thinking about. <laughs> and, uh, but like for actual art, there was a guy who uh, he would take a, like an aluminum, uh, a big aluminum plate like 20, 30 feet uh, square and put an emulsion on it and then made a camera obscura where he would take a, a landscape shot and develop it on this plate and uh, you could go up to it apparently with like a magnifying glass and see more and more detail because it's like infinite depth of field. And that was super fascinating to me, the idea that you could have like this enormous image with just endless detail, as much as you could ever want.
0: Now I feel like I want to do that, but for a baby skull. Uh, (laughs) So both of those are super cool. Um, I mean, the baby skull one obviously is a little... I don't know, I guess I find it a little... um, I think if I saw it, I would have a hard time forgetting it too. But I, you know, to me, kind of art is something that someone does with the intention of making you feel something, and I could well imagine that falling into that category. And the camera obscura thing is also very neat. Uh, we'll make sure that we drop a link to that uh, in the show notes um, so people can check that out too. Um, I'll have to find uh, it. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, no worries. We'll, we'll we can we can look for it too. That's very very cool. Well, um, so. Y- you guys uh, have been doing cool things together for quite a while now. Um, and th- kind of the reason that I wanted to have you on is that, um, Alan, you actually were on the show last... Oh, it's over two years ago now. Um, and at the time, we talked about Boot and Hoplon and Javelin. And um, I feel like those were really good ideas then, and they are still really good ideas now. But... <laughs> One of the things is that I've actually been starting to see more of them out in the closure universe. Uh, people around here have been talking a lot about boot lately. Um, I have actually personally switched over to using boot and hoplon, and of course, by extension, javelin. And we'll explain what all those things are to our listeners who don't who aren't familiar in a minute. I've been using all those for my personal projects lately, um, and I've been really been digging it. And they're they're just they're different from some of the other things that are out there right now. And I just thought. What a great time to follow up uh, with these guys to go back and revisit those topics uh, to get more in-depth into them, especially now that I have a little more context and maybe I can actually ask slightly more intelligent questions. So, uh, And, of course, you know, like we always say, and this is always true, we'd love to hear about whatever is interesting to you, but are you guys up for a chat about some of those things uh, on the way to whatever else we talk about? Totally. Cool. Yep. Excellent so um maybe you could just start with talking about the this this triad i mean i know that they are things that you can use independently boot hoplon and um and javelin but maybe you could just give us the tour for anybody that hasn't encountered them
2: okay um well i think i might uh take attack with this that misha took with the podcast he was recently on the defun podcast which is um a fun listen for me uh The way he began telling about the the trilogy is uh, basically how Misha and I met, and Misha and I met in a context that had nothing to do with computers, Um, and in fact, we were maybe even starved for the keyboard uh, in the army. We did did work that had nothing to do with computers, but he was the only programmer I ever met, so we would often have conversations about computers and programming, and um, Misha was one of the few people I knew who had, like, actual C programming experience. And I knew a lot of things about the web that Misha didn't know, so we, we, we had a lot of interesting conversations. Um, and it's funny, I, I feel like a lot of the most interesting conversations about computers and programming happen at times and in places when, you know, the keyboard and the computer and Wikipedia are far away, because that's when you're really forced, forced to imagine what could be. Definitely. So um, we had a lot of those kind of conversations, and then when we both left the Army later, we, we started to... Work together at places. This is another kind of cool phenomenon in the professional computing world that I, I know a few groups like us who sort of do this. But basically, you know, you work at a company and then you can influence hiring, and you know who you work with well, and you look in your address book and you call those people up and you get them, you know, into a team. And I think some company out west even started hiring teams just flat out. They would hire groups of two or three people. So I found that my pro- professional trajectory has kind of orbited. Groups of people and individuals, and those individuals, is Misha, and the same is true for him. So we were working at places, and we would hook each other up with contract work or jobs at those places. And as we worked together more, we started to develop. Uh, it's not—I wouldn't call it a philosophy, since it's not formalized at all. But basically, when you work with someone or a small group of people, you develop a way of working, and you develop a perspective on how. You gather the information and materials together that you need to do work, the, the tool set and the outlook. And um, I think after that, after you've done some things together in a small team or with another person, then you start to develop like actual tools that you use to do these jobs that both people know how to use. And Boot and Hoplon and Javelin are things that emerge from that uh, collaboration. They're, they are. Uh, more or less tools that followed conversations that Misha and I had. And then we would independently go research things and build our own prototype things and show them to each other and argue about it. And we ended up arriving at these set of tools, I guess, a few years ago is when we, we arrived at them. Not much has changed about them since
1: I last told you about them two years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we were basically like in it together, like doing, you know, working, trying to make money. And there were problems that we needed to solve to be able to, you know, you don't want to solve the same problems all the time. So, you know, little by little, we would, we were working on these problems and because there was two of us and because we were always, you know, working on the same kind of things, it was, you know, we could be a little bit more ambitious, like, and you know what I mean? So like for us, we've solved some of these problems like forever. Like we're just going to use the things now and we do other things, you know? Yeah. Mm
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess if we had a dynamic, it would be maybe the idealist and the, the skepticist <laughs> I'm pretty idealistic about computers, and they're you know what a gift to humanity they are and Misha's right there to cut me down, and he freely mentions how you know anything computers do they instantly make worse, and you know there's all kinds of holes in this idea. but you know if you go back and forth like that with somebody, particularly if you know, it's a friendly rapport, um, I feel like we've we've managed to make some some decent decisions, or at least come up with a set of tools that we both like to use. Yeah, Uh, so. Go ahead. uh, Yeah, so just a roundabout way of getting to, describing what Boot, Hoplon, and Javelin are, but Boot is a build tool, Uh, basically. It's it's, uh, more a library of closure functions that help you craft your own build tool to match whatever your build scenario is for any definition of build that you have, um, which makes it difficult to explain, but we'll get into that, I'm sure. Um, and we came up with the idea for boot after working on a web framework because, uh, called hoplon because the web of today requires sophisticated
1: tooling to get anything done with just because there are so many technologies and file formats and uh,
2: yeah, not only that, like
1: at the time, so this is in like 2012 closure script was pretty rough then. I mean, not, it was still awesome, but you know, we needed different things and, uh, you know, having our own, like, so you could do a lot of things in the build process if you have a flexible enough environment to build in. And that's where we found, like, we didn't, we didn't have that so we made it and so in Hoplon originally there were a lot of things that were actually going into, you know, the ClojureScript world and changing things around, you know. So implementing stuff that we wanted but, you know, it doesn't make sense to go and try and get it into the ClojureScript compiler like we just want to get work done and if it works out, it could be, you know, upstream can take it, but we just, like right now, we want to get our work done, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so boot basically was filled in the holes that were missing for us in our workflow because we were very convinced that ClojureScript is the way to build stuff, especially when we need to build a single page app. Um, but you know, the tools were not just immature, they're more or less non-existent. The line Predated what we were doing, but it was not used very widely. Closure Script in general wasn't. Um, so then, Javelin is a Closure Script library that was part of the Hoplon framework. Uh, so they're all they're all loosely related to each other through this this goal of ours back in 2011-2012 to come up with a solution for building web apps. Uh, but now they're they they're usable separately from each other you can use boot without using hopline you can use javelin without using either uh, they they're definitely separate pieces
0: yeah and so I think um, of the of the three I think boot is the one that people are most likely to encounter simply because the other two are closure script specific uh, and boot of course is usable even if you never touch ClojureScript. Um, and I think you know it it exists in the same space as lin I don't you know, it, it that's the tool that most people are using. That if they go use boot, then they're no longer using line again, which is what I've done. Like it's a kind of an either or. Although I believe there is some, maybe you guys can talk later about um, what it would mean if anything sensible to to use both. But I've I've been using boot for this this process of builds, and the thing that I've been struck by really, and this is something Alan that you explained to me last time, but that you know once you get a chance to use a tool. That sometimes is what it really takes to kind of start to viscerally understand things, is is that it really is quite a different approach, in that it feels more like programming closure, right? About you know writing functions and passing data through functions, yeah. than something else where you have, you know like a DSL and you're you're building an interpreter over that
1: DSL, right? Is, does that make any sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, the, the way I see it is, is uh, the boot, I mean, the reason why it's called boot is because all it really does, like, the objective of boot is to bootstrap you to a place where you can program in closure. So it's like the minimum that you need to get closure to make a closure program that will do something useful. But then, additionally, it provides some, some functions that you can use, you know, like namespaces and libraries and whatnot, that you can use to do things that you commonly want to do when you build stuff but primarily it just gets you to a place where you can start writing a program and then you could do anything
0: right now and of course you guys do provide some um uh, actually that's a good question so what does it look like to start a project in boot i mean if i'm using line again i say line new whatever and then i have a project clj and i you know then i say line repl and now i've got a repl and i'm off and and running and i add dependencies in my project clj for people that haven't used boot yet what's the what is the process like uh, for boot, and then we can get into how you advance your project, like how you go beyond the default. But what is the sort of default intro- introductory user experience? Yeah, what do you do?
2: Well, I think if the default, pro- so, you know, project I think is a pretty overloaded, overloaded term because it can mean one of experiment, application, or library in general. Or an experiment is something where you don't even care to have a file, you just want to see how some library works or try out some function idea you came up with on the train or whatever. And there are libraries where you already have some code or some idea for code, what you want to create, and it's going to be supporting some other application, which is a separate project. And then you may have an application which is going to be uh, code that's purpose-built to solve a problem in the real world, outside of the domain of programming, probably for your client or your boss. And um, all of those three things in boot have the same starting point, usually, which is the boot command. Uh, you can start any start development on any of those three kinds of things just by typing boot repl. And that gets you to a closure repl. The biggest distinction in the beginning part of a, of a project between boot repl and line repl or Clojure's native repl is that boot has the ability for you to bring in dependencies from the repl. So you don't need to specify your dependencies in a file before starting the REPL. At the REPL, you can bring them in. And this is uh, analogous to I think a a line plugin that Ryan Neufeld wrote a couple years ago called Line Try. And the idea is you want a REPL with a dependency on it, just experiment. That's where a lot of projects begin. And that's probably how most uh, that's at least how I start almost anything with boot. Um, And then for an application or a library, you're going to probably have some idea ahead of time of what dependencies you need already. So you're not going to be dynamically discovering things, trying libraries out. You probably have an idea of what you want to work with, so you'll create a build.boot file. And that's analogous to, you know, pom.xml or project.clj. Um, the main difference is that a build.boot file is a closure program, not a... a, de- not a uh, not a, it's it's not a language other than closure. It's a, interpreted by the closure evaluator. Um, yeah, and
1: because like the boot tasks are just function. Well, everybody always says everything is just functions, but <laughs> anyway, they are, you can compose them like functions and call them like functions and stuff. So uh, we have a library, this bootlaces library, but um, you know that's that's kind of what I do. I, I prestage my own little workflow as you know, prepackaged tasks and I, I can pull that from Maven and have it loaded so then I have you know, the normal ways that I build jars and all that stuff you know, configured the way I like it already set up.
2: Which is kind of analogous to the way that compile and runtime are interleaved in Lisps traditionally. Like in the sense that a def macro and a defun can inhabit the same runtime. You can defun something and then make a def macro where you call that thing that you defun then you make another def macro, so the phases of macro expand compile and run are interleaved over the lifetime of your execution. this is the the um, you know sequential evaluation model of, of Lisp interpreters and boot kind of supports that so you can create a boot task, run it, edit it, reload your build up boot file, try it again um, where in a build tool that has a static build description language, like Make or Maven, you're going to need to edit that file, shut down your JVM, restart your JVM after you've edited the file. So I would say it's just Lispier in general.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I've really been enjoying about it. I think uh, the, the one that hits me right away is the one you mentioned, which is the ability to pull in uh, new dependencies dynamically and to really, I mean, you know, we, we talk about you could sit down at a REPL and build your whole program. Right, you could just say defen, defen, deafen. Oh, I'm going to redo that one. I've got state. Boom! I have a running program. I never saved a file. Really, I just typed it all in. Right. And, and I think, I think, you know, it's kind of the same way that you could do with boot. Now, the same way that you don't typically create production systems by, you know, opening up a REPL on the prod box and typing until the system <laughs> is working. I think, you know, you don't, you do, you would probably not create non-trivial systems with boot by simply building it up. But you can. And then you can go from that to, you know, kind of um, uh, capturing what you've come up with interactively and and working with that. And I just, I really, really like that approach. It just, it resonates with me uh, uh, very well. And I think there's another thing I would like you guys to comment on is how much of this was planned, how much of it you think is an outcome of the philosophy that was happy accident. But it seems to me like one of the places where Brute really shines is, Um, Actually hard to explain to beginners because it it has to do with, you know, the wins that you get as you get into projects that are more or that are less trivial, that are more, you know, kind of um, industrial strength. Where, I mean, Misha, you said the way that I like to work. Well, you know, you have these projects and over time they're like, oh, we have to have some special asset asset pipeline build because... You know, people from the documentation team are sending us, you know, Word docs, and we need to transform those somehow. We want to integrate that all in. And, you know, you wind up with these extra bits that you need to do. And if you have a DSL approach, then, you know, you have to write an interpreter and find a way to express it or, you know, do some other type of integration. Maybe it's a bash script. But with boot, it's really, let's have an execution model so that since my model is execution and it's in Clojure, I start right there. I say, "Well, I'm. I have a process, and it has steps, and it does things, not a language where I say things, and then Mm -hmm. I have to write a a, something something that knows how to speak that language." I don't know if that makes any sense, but it
2: makes it it makes a lot of sense, and it actually gives me a thought of how to set up Misha to explain it. So I'm gonna, I'll try this. I'll try to okay. I'll try to you know pass it to Misha. So bump.
0: All right, I did the bump. You're doing the set. Got it. All right. Yeah, I'll
2: set it up. So. I heard Rich Hickey say, maybe in a talk when I was in the beginning of my closure learning five, six years ago, seven years ago, uh, about why Java, quote, won and C++, quote, lost. Now, of course, C++ hasn't lost. You know, a lot of people use C++, and there's definitely a, a space within Application and library development where C is very much alive. But I think uh, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, people saw Java and C as competitors in the development of large-scale applications. Where large-scale you know, has is some function of application size and team size. And uh, he made the, the point that you know Java developed over time this library ecosystem where C more or less stagnated in, in, as far as libraries go. And, his reasoning for that disparity was Java gave library authors the elements they needed to capture workflows um, in a way that could work universally. And one of those key things is probably garbage collection. Um, you can't combine libraries that have different strategies for allocating and deallocating memory because each of those strategies forms a life cycle and it's very hard to interleave resource dependent life cycles. That's so just like a super hard problem is coordinating I.O. like that. And that's basically the problem that garbage collection solves. Obviously there are trade-offs involved, but um, you know, if you want to share workflows and combine them meaningfully, you definitely need garbage collection. And what garbage collection lets you do is have uh, what what you might call first class data structures in the sense that the system supports the tracking and management of anonymous Structures So, you know, functions can take managed structures that are managed invisibly by the garbage collections, underlying part of the language runtime, and they can also return these structures, and they don't need to manage them uh, while they're using them. And so, you know, that lets us us bundle up solutions to problems in ways that are very easy to consume. Um, And so, I think one of the things we came to appreciate after working on Boot, and I, I should say, it's not like all the pieces of boot we just figured out in one of our conversations in the army and then sat down and typed it out. It's definitely been years of fumbling and hitting guardrails and slapping each other around and eventually arriving at something that works. Um, but one of those things was identifying what, what are the parts, what are the aspects of build processes that are preventing us from doing this like programming? Like what is preventing us from capturing workflows and sharing them in libraries, like the way we do in the JVM or enclosure? Um, and I think the two things in boot that represent those first-class structures are pods and file sets. Yep. And then, Misha, it's over to you now. <laughs> Spike it.
1: Yeah, uh, a weird thing, well, a different thing about boot is that there's no, uh, there's no dependency graph or anything like that. So boot isn't going to do anything. Boot doesn't try and figure out what you're trying to do. And it won't do anything unless you explicitly tell it to do it. You need to call a function or compose some things together and then call that. And so that's kind of different than any of the other things that I've really used in the past. And, um, but one of the things that means is that like, it gives you, I think it gives you a lot more flexibility and reach because like to the programmer when you're setting up a workflow, a pipeline, you, it's obvious to you what you need to do first and what you need to do next and so on. But it might be very, very difficult for the computer to figure out what the dependencies really are, and you might make a mistake and when you do your build, you see immediately what went wrong and you reorder things so to a human it's pretty obvious what you want to do, and so you just have to have a very direct way to tell it to tell the computer to do it and you know Lisp obviously gives you the best way to describe to a computer what you want it to do and so so that 's one part, and um, another part is that a lot of the a lot of the 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 more odd things in boot um, arise from the need to keep this JVM alive for as long as possible because it's expensive to keep restarting JVMs and stuff. So <clears throat> that means that we have to we have to think really hard about how to manage like the mutable JVM substrate uh, and build things on top of it that would still that you could still program with some of the affordances of immutability. And so that's like where pods and the file set kind of come in, where you can isolate things that mutate. In other words, you can make a pod that isolates class path mutation. Or you can, and and you could have that pod creating files in an anonymous temporary directory that only boot really knows where it's located. And then you could take those files and add them to a file set which is an immutable representation of the class path of the, you know, the main pod that you're in. And so I think, yeah, I think a lot of it kind of emerged from the fact that there's a need to get incremental compilation and long-lived. You know, like That's a lot of the reason why the REPL, why there was so much emphasis on everything being workable from the REPL, because you have a long-lived REPL session and you want to leverage that. You don't want to have to keep restarting it so Mm -hmm. yeah
0: right so you mentioned um a couple things in there a lot of super interesting stuff but you mentioned concretely pods and file sets and I have to say as a relatively new user of boot these are not actually things that I am smacked in the face with I mean I know they're there but you know I write a build boot file and I kind of say boot repl and maybe a couple other things and you know it's fairly easy for me to add my own steps into the build or whatnot. And I haven't really had to, to confront what a pod is, what a file set is. So, um, educate me, like what, what are these things and, and how would I use them? What am I missing out on by not taking advantage
1: of them? Man, you know, that's, that's actually like, uh, that's a, that's a thing that, that I really lo- like I like it when people say that, because I think it's really great to have software that separates, like, architecture from building an actual application, meaning, like, uh, so, like, this is what we try and achieve with Hoplon as well, where you make, you make a, b- a bunch of libraries with where the actual functionality is, but you should be able to assemble an application out of those components just by composition without knowing too much about the internals. That, and if, you, if it's really done well, then there's so many ways that you could compose them that, it's, that, that you could stay out of that world unless you need to do something novel, which is, so I, I, I'm glad you said that. It makes you feel good. <laughs> good, yeah, no, it's, I, I have quite enjoyed it. I mean, we, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more
0: about my experience because I've been primarily using with Hoplon maybe when we talk about Hoplon, but, uh, but explain to me what, um, so, you know, given that I don't have or have not yet had to know, I still am enjoying boot enough that I'm like, well, at some point I'm probably gonna want this stuff so arm me, arm me with the knowledge of what pods and file sets are, so that when I have a problem, I will go. Aha! That is a file set shape
2: problem.
1: Sure, maybe I'll do file sets, and then Alan can do pods. Yeah, I guess That's it's it.
2: worth saying that there's the kind of the, the the three pillars of of boot are probably tasks, file sets, and pods. And um, tasks came first, and those are the things that are just functions. And pods and file sets came after when we really wanted for tools to do functional programming in the build setting. And it turned out and to we build need. large projects too. Yeah, yeah. And it turned out the tools we needed to work with these things were not functions like we had functions up in Wazoo. We were composing them and calling them and but the problem is to do functional programming you need not just functional not just functions you need really immutable collection types, immutable aggregates that you can build on incrementally, immutably and uh, efficiently. Um, and I think, uh, pods and file sets are, are, are really right. the values that you work with, with tasks, which are
1: functions. So, yeah, so maybe could, we do file sets first, cause pods kind of, pods are more useful when you're using them kind of with, yeah. file sets, or we so. can do
2: like a problem approach, like
1: you're, you're building a thing and you want to make, do some kind of processing and
2: how do you do it? Or,
1: yeah, I mean, like for file sets though, like at the high level, um, what you want to do in a build is you have a bunch of artifacts, which is things that are on the class path in the JVM and things that might end up in some kind of packaged artifact, like a jar file or just a directory that has a bunch of files, whatever you want at the end, when, like when boot stops running, you're going to want to have something, usually. It might be something that you ship to S3, so maybe it never exists on your disk, but there's this concept of like having a, an artifact that you're creating. Um, and in order to create that, you take some source files that are usually in Git or something. These are the files that are owned by you that you're working on. And then you run this build process on it, which performs a number of transformations and does uh, a number of steps sequentially, and at the end, you know, produces these artifacts. And working in the JVM and enclosure, uh, what you need, you're going to need to manage the class path, which means, um, so you could pull in jar files and, and things like that, which are treated more or less immutably by the JVM, meaning once a class loader has you know, loaded a jar in there, you can't really unload it. Uh, but there's also a mutable class path, which is you could add a directory to a class loader, and you could add and remove or change files from there, and it doesn't cache them. It doesn't cache the, the, you know, the byte code that was generated from them. So you could, um, So part of what Boot does is manage the class path for you. Um, and the reason why you'd want to do this is because one task might create some files that need to be on the class path for the next task. Because traditionally, all the all the actual Java machinery that you're going to use, like the Java compiler, the Closure script, the Google Closure compiler, all these big giant projects uh, that predate Closure and Boot and everything, um, expect to find things on the class path and they put things back somewhere in a directory usually. So we needed to like, work within that, within that world. We don't want to throw away everything from the JVM. So that means that when a task is doing its work, its input is generally going to be on the class path, and its output is going to go into some directories or something. And then we're going to want to take the output, maybe, and merge it into the class path. So that's where the file sets come in. The file set is an immutable snapshot of all the files related to this build. So there's some of them are on the class path, some of them are not, and they're organized in different ways. But it's like an immutable snapshot of the file system. And it's um, physical manifestation sort of is a record type, so a closure record uh, which is an immutable data structure. And given a, a file set object, this immutable record, you can call methods on it to Sync it with the file system, say, which means like make the real file system and the real class path and so on like my file set object. Uh, you can also do git-like operations, so you can say, add all the files in this directory here to the file set.
2: And underneath it is the, the implementation of it is more or less git the content address yep um, stuff
1: yeah, so. So you can like, you can add files and then commit them. And when you commit them, you know, they get synced to the file system. then you can pass, you know, you can hold on to a file set. So somebody passes you a file set, you do some work, maybe create a new file set, give that to someone else, but you can still hold on to the one that you had, which is the benefit of immutable data, right? And so if you want to roll back time and reset the file system to where it was when you first started, you can just commit the file, syst- the file set object that you've saved uh, and the file system will be just like it was in that state. Uh, so the, so the, the idea is that a task uh, gets a file set given to it which represents an immutable representation of the state of the file system and then it does some work uh, which is you know for side effects creating files and things like that. Compiling stuff. Yeah. Less Java,
2: AOT sure. closure,
1: whatever. Making ERB files into HTML files, whatever it is. Yep. And then uh, and then it takes the output of that and adds it back into the files to a new file set and then passes that to the next task. And so this is good for like the incremental build cycle because every time you you know the, the pipeline is a, a bunch of nested middleware, um, kind of like a transducer, and it can keep calling itself. So each each step can call the next step. One time, zero times, or many times, however, however they want, and pass it, you know, a saved file set. So. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the pipeline aspect, right? Yeah, right. Yep. So the file set was necessary for the pipeline to work properly, because you need to be able to rewind to any step in the pipeline to rerun it, if that makes sense. Uh, Actually,
0: I don't quite follow that bit. Like, what is the – maybe you can help me with an example of
1: where I would need to rerun some step of this process. Sure. So, like, I made a a task recently. Like, I wanted in ClojureScript to be able to do refer all and use accept. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In other words, like, refer all the names, whether they're – and I don't want to, like, distinguish between macros and – so I thought it could be done, so I, I was like, the first thing I'll do is I'll make a boot task to transform a file into a different ClojureScript file. Right? So it takes. So I have foo.cljs in my source directory of my repo and uh, I put ns plus instead of ns and I make, a, I make a, a boot task that looks for every cljs file in my project and if it sees that the first form is ns plus, it's going to perform this transformation which finds out like which things are macros, which aren't and adds them, you know, and transforms it into a regular ClojureScript NS macro. Um, So what I wanna do though, is I wanna replace the file that was there. So if I made food.cljs in my project, I wanted to just replace that with the modified one so that it can go through the compilation, the rest of the pipeline, which includes like maybe the ClojureScript compiler and stuff like that. So they won't even know that this transformation took place. And in order to do that, you really need to have some kind of immutable representation of the file system because you're actually replacing a file with a different one. So if I'm running an, an incremental build where every time I change a file, it rebuilds things that have changed. So whenever I type in foo.cljs and I save it, it's gonna run this thing, this pipeline again. And so it needs to be able to, to start off to, to undo the changes that were done by subsequent tasks. Mm. Yep. You know that what I mean? Makes, because yep. you're, you're doing destructive actions, mutating all over town, however you want. And so you need to be able to roll back those commits. Reset minus minus hard is basically what it is. Yep, no, that makes a lot of
0: sense. I, I, I mean, and that, that example is a good one, I think, because you, know, because you mentioned the NS macro, right? That's actually a tough one to... To do any other way, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: the NS macro is, is maybe the one thing in Closure that the user has no control over the the, yeah. the operation of. And it's funny, like over the years since we started on Hoplon, we've added all kinds of f- cool features to Closure, like multi-line strains, uh, <laughs> What else? All kinds of automatic refer stuff. Because basically, you know, we'd, we'd be working on these big applications. It's like, man, who wants to copy a 20-line NS thing into every single file that they're working on? Like this is where the build tool needs to help us because the language can't, you know, just the way Clojure works, we can't drive that up. Um, so historically, we've been pretty skeptical of features going into Clojure that solve these problems because we our, our view is kind of, if the build tool can solve it, then the language should not. Because every time something goes in the language, everyone has to use it.
1: But we're kind of... And the administrative overhead of like, you know, just discussing with hundreds of people when you could just have your own, you know what I mean, like ES6 versus making a macro that gives you let in five minutes. Yeah. So that's, we wanted to be able to just like make whatever crazy thing that maybe is unwise, <laughs> but we could do it inside of our own build task. Yeah, we, needs we needed to no
2: approval. Right.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
2: So, yeah, so we have kind of a suite of, of experiments really extending the language syntactically, so semantically in various weird ways. And boot is a great way to do that, and, and uh, you know, I would encourage people to explore that aspect of using Clojure, because I think if you've used it for more than a few months, you probably have gripes, and you might be able to craft it into something that you, you like more.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the analogy is, if you're working in a language like Java, there's a lot of things you can't do, and you wind up repeating yourself a lot. And then you know people say "Well, why do you like closure and it's like well because of that
2: <laughs> right <laughs>
0: because I don't have to do uh, al- almost any of that anymore I can I can mutate the language to fit my needs and I think what you're saying is that um, although boot's not limited to that it gives you even more power to do that when the language can't or or doesn't
2: yeah it gives you a limited form of syntactic extension mm-hmm. of closure which is you know traditionally uh, poo pooed But with we know when you own the built when you own the files that the syntax is in, you can do whatever you want to them before you hand it to the closure compiler. So we found doing that is pretty useful. Yeah,
0: you use it to good effect in um, in Hoplon, which I hope we will might have to have you guys back on at this point because this is super interesting (laughs) and I want to move on yet. But uh, yeah, uh, you certainly use it to good effect in Hoplon, where you have like crazy stuff like you write what looks like HTML, like what any designer could could pick up and look and say that looks very very familiar. And yet, <laughs> at some point it turns into, you know, something else. It's very cool. Yeah, we're
2: kind of calling off that experiment, though.
0: Interesting. Okay, all right. We'll, <laughs> we'll have to talk about that. Um, I have actually haven't gone down that road. But anyway, anyway let's, yeah. let's not lose track because uh, you, you, so file sets, I understand. Great explanation. Get why you'd want to have that. Um, and I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, the other thing we wanted to talk about, though, was pods.
2: Yeah, I can maybe try and do that one. Yes, please. Okay. So uh, the JVM is a very compelling platform for many many reasons, but maybe one of the both most underappreciated and misunderstood and maybe even hated features is this concept of the class path and business with class loaders. Um, This is like a mid-level to advanced sort of Java person adventure. At some point, someone interacts with class loaders and dynamically adding... Java classes or resources to the class path depending on various situations and it's something people are will run up against at some point in their usage of the JVM platform regardless of what language they're on. Um, and they're one of those things that are very unwieldy but it's also very powerful. Once you understand how class loaders work, uh, you can do some pretty powerful things and uh, Java application servers are examples of things that people have built that are based on the, the utility of the class loader. The idea that you can have a JVM, for instance, uh, serving multiple different web applications, and each of those web applications has its own set of dependencies. There may be different versions of the same dependency. Um, and the way you can do that is with class loaders. And, and the, the class loader thing is not, I, I'm not aware of any other language runtimes. I'm not, I don't know much about the CLR. I'm not sure if it has a, a class loader type thing. Uh, but the, the, the really weird, compelling thing about class loaders in the JVM that distinguishes them, is that they are uh, values, more or less, and not it, they're, they're first class in the sense that you can create a variable that contains a class loader, where a class loader is effectively a global scope for some execution context. So code that runs inside that class loader can see things that code running outside of it can't necessarily see. So it's almost like you're running JVMs within JVMs for a lot of values in JVM. And... Um, this is, so it's, you know, it's a scoping mechanism. It's a, a basically a first-class global scope. But because it's so difficult and tricky to work with traditionally, a few people, uh, even if they need them, sure, sort of shy away from working directly with class loaders. And there's some gotchas, some historical uh, things about class loaders that make them kind of daunting. But any JVM language makes good use of class loaders, and anybody who's doing any kind of application server-type stuff or they have, you know, have some kind of uh, container for other kinds of app is going to do class loader stuff. So pods in boot are basically the working person's practical class loader. It is a set of functions that give you the ability to create a class loader more or less and to run code inside of it and to get and to ship data to and from this isolated environment. So it's like a very lightweight. Closure runtime. What's that? Specifically closure. Yeah. Yeah. So each pod. Is a closure an instance of the closure runtime running inside the same JVM that the creator of the pod is running in, but uh, it's a totally different closure runtime. So, for instance, if you do def x one in the parent closure runtime, but then in the pod you do def x two, and then you evaluate code code in both places in the in the in the runtime where you created the pod, x is going to be one inside the pod, x is going to be two, and. Um, they're different closure runtimes, but they're also different JVMs to the extent that you can use Boot's uh, dependency resolution stuff to load dependencies into pods that sibling pods or parent pods will not see. And so the utility of this is, um, for I guess one of the one of the reasons I use pods a lot is I, we do a lot of stuff on AWS, and when I can, I use closure libraries that add niceties to working with AWS Java APIs. The problem, though, is that a lot of these different closure libraries depend on different versions of the AWS SDK, which is a massive dependency, uh, and you can run into weird problems if you load it multiple times, different versions of it. So one mitigation is you can add, you can create a pod, so you create a closure instance, then you add dependencies to it, for instance, the AWS SDK, and then maybe Bandalore, which is a library for working with SQS that depends on the SDK. Now, inside that pod, you can run closure code that uses Bandalore, uses that version of the AWS SDK, but is not impacted by whatever version of either of those libraries you load into the the parent pod or the parent environment in which you've created uh, the pod. So it's a way for you basically to program as if you're spawning new JVMs with totally different sets of dependencies, and then communicate with these runtimes. And uh, that really reduces your the likelihood of you running into strange dependency problems. So they're, they're, I guess, a mitigation tool, a tool for mitigating class path issues.
0: So would you use this, I mean, at development time for exploratory, for exploratory program, or is this something that you would de- deploy, or how, what's the use
2: case here? So that I guess there are two. The first use case that it was developed for primarily was: say you're writing a task, like say you're writing. Say Misha ships a library of his NS Plus library in it, and <laughs> um, he depends on the I don't know some other library. What would be one that he would depend on? Tools namespace or sure closure script analyzer.
1: Anything from Apache with a million dependencies. Yeah,
2: <laughs> String utils from IO Commons or whatever he uses in there. Um, so like I may, I may be, uh, and, and let's say he, distribute, he distributed this not as a boot task but as a library, just a, a closure function and a closure project with dependencies in Maven and a single function that maybe, let's say it takes a file and it rewrites it into one of Misha's NS augmented files, a closure script files. Um, so I would look at this, I'd be like well I want, to do, I want to use Misha's thing, I have a build going on over here in boot. But I see he depends on like all kinds of stuff from IO commons and whatever that, that conflicts with things that are already in my, in my application. So the question is how can I integrate Misha's cool function for transforming files into my build without messing up my build time dependencies and potentially my runtime dependencies if I, you know, depending on what I'm doing. And the answer there is I'll, I'll write, I write a boot task and inside the boot task I maintain a pod that contains an instance of Misha's library that's totally isolated from everything else in my application and I can feed it files to transform and I can get files back from it that have been transformed but that is totally isolated from a dependency perspective from the rest of my JVM or my runtime. So in a build context, pods are a way to use libraries from the Internet, from Maven that do useful things, integrate them into your build process without uh, imposing on yourself any kind of um, class path pollution or overriding or general class path problems. Basically you can you bring them in scot-free. Um, that's kind of the reason we came up with them but the second reason you might use them which is rarer uh, is if boot is the entry point to your application in production. So. In most cases, people are built like say you're building a web app with Boot. What you'll do is you'll you'll work with the web app locally, you know, with the Boot repl where you start a local Ring Jetty, or uh, you'll use the Web Serve task to you know work on it locally. But at the end of the day, you want to ship a WAR file, and that's going to go up to you know Heroku or Beanstalk or your own Tomcat or whatever. Um, in the local development case, the entry point to your application is you typing boot development or whatever your task name is. In production, the entry point to your application is the servlet entry point that was produced by the war task. Um, in the local case, where boot is the entry point, all of the boot runtime stuff is available for you to use, like pods and file sets. But in the production setting, where Tomcat is, selects and uses the entry point to your function, the boot runtime stuff is not available there because in order to make pods work we need to run java code before we run any closure stuff. Just basically we set up
1: the pods before starting any closure instances. It's kind of a hand-wavy technical description of the issue. Yeah, like all closure code needs to run in a pod and if it's not running in a pod then it kind of ruins it for the rest of us. <laughs> so so that yeah, like that's what boot like the boot executable starts with the java program that constructs the first pod where your code's going to run. Mm-hmm. Right. But
2: if, if there is no phase distinction between build and run, like they're just kind of interleaved, um, and in-production boot is your entry point, which it might be if you're running, I don't know, we, we've done this with Docker, you can run boot and Docker, and then boot is your entry point. Um, then all the boot runtime stuff is available, and then you can use pods at runtime. And I've done this in the past with this, Bandalore library. I was, I was using dependencies at runtime to interact with SQS and I didn't want to suffer their transitive dependencies. Um, in retrospect, maybe ill-advised, I don't know, maybe it's good
1: yeah. to... I think with Docker, it's, I, think that, I think it works out well with Docker because with Docker you can like uh, bake the Maven stuff, the Maven... Right. Cache into the right, image? yeah. So the,
2: the, that's right. The problem with doing it at runtime is the Maven resolution then also happens at runtime, which means that you're potentially pushing something into production that can't yet run. It right. still needs to talk to Maven Central or whatever to download the stuff. But yeah, you can, if you're working in Docker, you can build your image separately from deploying it. And as part of the build step, you can um, cache the dependencies you're going to need at runtime.
1: Yeah, and like being able to use pods, like if you run into some problem, you could spend a long time you know messing around with dependencies and trying to figure out a way out of it by negotiating amongst all the libraries you know it's like the UN (laughs) (laughs) but you could just throw a pot at it and you know the fire is out at least yeah yeah
0: yeah that's interesting I I mean I've definitely dealt with that uh, problem of kind of different fiefdoms right I mean it's it's worse than the UN because at least there you have national borders this is like well I'm going to take the US and overlap it with Canada. Right. And there's there's two St. Louises, you know, or two two towns that want to occupy the same piece of ground. How are we going to do that? Right. But yeah. Uh yeah, St. Louis 1.0 and 2.0 and yeah, they're <laughs> incompatible. Um yeah, I know that that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, very cool. Um oh, that's such good stuff. Uh yeah, I, I really like I, said, I I am quite happy with what you said, uh Misha, which is you know, being able to use boot without having to ha- have had a really deep understanding of this stuff. But I'm certainly glad we had this uh, discussion about it. And and it's funny. We've been talking for close to an hour now. Um, and very usefully, I think. And yet, when I step back, and maybe this is me being naive, but I don't think so. Like, it really is a fairly smallish thing, right? Like, there's really... You you mentioned tasks, file sets, and uh, and pods... And I've only really had to kind of vaguely understand one of those things to be useful with it, so it's, it's a good, that's that's pretty cool. I always like it when that happens with software that I write, although I can't claim to have done anything um, as elegant as what you guys have pulled off. Oh,
2: thank you. Thanks. Yeah, that's
0: that's a very yeah. high praise. Um Cool. Well, man, I really I really do want to talk about Hoplon. I think we're going to wind up abbreviating the discussion, but um, but it's just something I've been working on lately, uh, working with lately rather. Um, so maybe we can at least, uh, well, well, I guess maybe I should stop there and say, is there anything else that we should say about, that we, about boot? Is there another important part of
2: the boot story that we, haven't, that we haven't discussed? So I would say a couple things about boot. First of all, the barriers to trying it is super low. It's as low as it ever has been. It, uh, we have a, a number of, happy, for a long time, the, a lot of people didn't like boot or at least were discouraged from using boot because it was a real pain to use on Windows. And we still don't support Windows 7 and below and never will because of limitations of the file system API, but um, actually Sean Corfield, who's a, a heavy boot user and contributor and sort of friend to the cause, uh, it has been happily using Windows on boot or boot on Windows 10. And as far as we know, it works very well on Windows 10. Yep. So, um, and on Mac and Linux, those are, the, those are the platforms we use boot on every day, so it's in really good shape there. So it's really easy to install and the second thing I would say is that we have probably one of the most friendly and knowledgeable communities out there in the Clojure world, maybe even in the open source at large. Uh, in particular on the Clojurian Slack thing in the boot uh, channel, I guess we can put this up, make a liner note for this. Uh, we have a boot channel and there are people who have written tasks. There are people who are using Boot for web development. There are people who are using Boot to work with. One guy the other day was doing stuff with Protobuf. Yep. Um, all kinds of interesting things uh, going on, and people are very friendly. So, like I said, barrier to entry very low, and
1: it's very easy to get help if you're stuck. Yeah, and Martin and Yuho, oh, yeah. all their work on the Clojure Script front. Yeah, there's,
2: there's a tremendous momentum in the Clojure Script world, and a lot of it is... Uh, boot centric, basically, people extending boot and, well, not even boot, basically creating and sharing and integrating libraries to sweeten the ClojureScript development experience in a, in a boot based app. So there's a lot of directions somebody interested in learning about boot could go with it, but uh, I think you'd be hard pressed to come up with some kind of application that you, you're going to do on the JVM that boot wouldn't help you do it somehow. Yeah,
0: I've certainly had no trouble doing the things that I've wanted to do, Uh, and I've done so far one, I would say, definitively non-trivial application. Uh, Nothing at a client yet, nothing kind of that kind of environment, but I've shipped a uh, a single-page web app that is, you know, it's a real piece of software, it's not one weekend hacking or anything like that so uh and i awesome. i had no trouble whatsoever with boot like boot never i i shouldn't say that i think i i had a very small amount of times where i had to be like go read the wiki to overcome some minor thing but i don't remember any time where i was like oh my god i just spent an entire day just getting files to compile or something that should be trivial so it was good cool that's really awesome um awesome well man i really want to talk about hoplon so let's let's do that we are going to wind up cutting it short there's no question because i think uh hoplon is another very interesting piece of kit and given that we just spent an hour talking about boot which is also interesting um <laughs> but given the relative surface areas i suspect that we would wind up with a 3 hour show which we attempt not to inflict on our listeners <laughs> um so but i i think maybe if we could at least get you guys to mention what uh, hoplon and uh and of course javelin are uh I do have a couple quick things I'd like to touch on and then we'll have to figure out a time it makes sense for you to come back and to, and to, for us to really devote the
2: time to it that it, that that it would deserve. Sure. Well, I guess, you know, I would say we can, we can cover, we can get into it here, but uh, there's also a Hoplon channel on Closure and Slack over that has an active user base and we're there. So, you know, anyone who's listening to this and is, uh, wanting for more on
1: Hoplon or any of the things we're about to discuss, they can always find us there. Yeah, you know what? I have to say that like, so all these things, for me anyway, is like the main it's really, I don't know, for me, Clojure is very unique in my experience. Um, and and like the Hoplon and Boot and all these things, they're very uh, it's, it's kind of like, it's very rewarding to me because they're things that I mean, as far as as my use of them, like professionally to make money and to get actual work done, like they're pretty much done. Like they do everything we need them to do. And we're moving on to, you know, we're thinking about other problems now. And we don't need to keep solving these problems. And that's, I've never experienced that before using Clojure. Like using other languages, I'd always end up, I could never form the abstractions that were, you know, durable and composable enough to, to be used in the next project, you know I would always end up having to rewrite something or solve the same problem over and over again. I'd never experienced actually solving a problem before or even being you know thinking that it was something that was worth spending your time on trying to do, like trying to solve a problem of making websites once and for all <laughs> so and that's all due to yeah. closure I think being- i, I,
0: I- I've had the same experience with a couple. I mean, and I mean two <laughs> different things that I've written. You know, I've got this little stochastic uh, Markov chain thingy, and it's like it's done, right? Like, if anybody asked me, should I use that? I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> go for it. It's good. And if they say, is there anything that you that you could change? I'm like, well, sure, I've got
2: a laundry list, but do I need to bother? Right. Eh,
0: you know. You know. It's and then great. people it's have so much feeling. power
2: to pave over whatever omissions you made too. Thanks to closures, dynamism, and
0: stuff. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, you know, um, we're actually going to save Hoplon and Javelin for another time because I really don't want to shortchange them. I really, I mean, I think you could probably explain them in 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 five minutes. But people can go read the web page for that. I think there's useful, extended conversation we could have. Let's let's save that up. Let's have you back on and have that discussion uh, some other time rather than attempting to shortchange uh these technologies now what do you think Sounds about? like a Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Uh well, well that's great. I just I just got you to agree to come on <laughs> again which is fantastic. Um, well cool. Uh so I I guess I will say though um, even though we're not going to, you know, spend an hour on hoplon, um, I always reserve time at the end of the show as much as makes sense, as much as we need uh to talk about anything else. We often have a main topic in mind today we certainly did. But is
2: there anything else? Yeah, like, here we
0: are right. This is a good opportunity. You know what else? What else is going on that we should talk about? So there today? was something that I wanted to
2: mention, um, and it, it's it's funny you brought up uh, earlier in our conversation the production of the Plural Site course. There is a uh, project that I have started with Daniel Higginbotham. Uh, so Daniel Higginbotham, author of *Closure of the Brave and True*, uh, *Man About Town*, in really every single way. Um, he's made his brave closure thing. He's got a closure job site now. The dude is also works at ads works at ads um, great, great person, all kinds working on all kinds of fun stuff. Very enthusiastic. So he and I collaborated, I guess two years ago on his closure for the brave and true book. And I, by saying we collaborated on it, really, I'm taking way more credit than I deserve because he had it basically written before he went to a publisher but I had the opportunity to be the technical editor and even write the foreword, and that's, I kind of developed a cool working relationship with Daniel. And he and I had both have a, have a lingering interest in the concept of education, or at least we're just so excited about closure that we feel like we should, <laughs> it's something we should do, I don't know. I feel like a lot of closure people have this inclination, it's like, I know this awesome thing, how do I tell other people about it without getting slapped? Um, so he and I started on this project called MXGo, uh, mxgo.io and the concept is basically online learning short courses modeled more after um, like talk length things than course length things and I guess the TLDR would be what if strange loop had a baby with plural site <laughs> <laughs> so um, the site isn't up as of this recording, but that's something we're going to be developing. And hopefully, I think by the time that this goes out, we'll have that up. So mxgo.io, uh, if it's something you're interested in, either producing content for or um, subscribing to, then I would encourage you to check that out. And uh, so that's kind of been been ramping up in my world. And then hopefully I can convince Misha to come on and uh, do the boot course. Maybe you can do the hoplon course, and then instead of recording another... CogniCast, we can just tell people to subscribe. Nice the go. There
0: you I'll go. You. Uh, so so is, is this all going to be, uh, I mean, obviously you and Daniel are both huge fans of Clojure. Is it going to be specific to Clojure and related technology? Well, that's a, or that's or a really it, good uh,
2: question and a cool thing about it is that it's not specific to Clojure. Um, I mean, what, like I said, one of the main inspirations for it is the, is the strange loop, sort of zeitgeist, you know? The, the world is filled with uh, inquisitive minds, and there's a lot out there in computing going on outside of closure and outside of functional programming and a lot of times people are you don't know what you want to learn right like how do you how do you find things that you would like to learn? Well, you kind of need to be exposed to things that you weren't looking for so no, the content will not be limited to closure we've We've got some ideas lined up um, you know for different kinds of languages. And, and CS topics, uh, we hope to mind the papers we love, presenters, we think uh, we're really attracted to the idea of getting people to produce content who have already given a talk and encouraging them and helping them to convert their talk into you know, a set of 20-minute uh, uh, explications with exercises on, on that topic. So yeah, hopefully a pretty diverse set of topics.
0: Cool. And you, you just said uh, with exercises, which I think is a key point because people might say, well, right. YouTube, right? I can go watch 10 million conference talks. Yeah, no yeah the big difference
2: I think will be exercises, but also, you know, very few things on YouTube are actually go through the edit repeat cycle, um, which, you know, I experienced in mm-hmm. real time with you when you and I were making a like Closure course. Like, <laughs> I can lay down a track yes, and in did. my mind it was amazing. <laughs> but if you look at it and, like, you know, you forgot to talk about this. You said this word three times. There's a typo on line 25. You know, and that's sort of not to disparage people who make content on YouTube because I think that's a great way to find new material too and to see awesome stuff. But um, you know, it's free for a reason.
0: Yeah, addition definitely makes a difference. I mean, you mentioned that you and I spent a week together producing a video. I think that video was a total of maybe three yeah. or four hours, and it was. Two people for forty. I mean, it wasn't forty hours. You and I worked like at least one 10 ten-hour day, right? So it was a boatload of work to produce,
2: and there was no video. It was it that's was slides true. and voice.
0: So it, it's just a lot of work to do video. There's no question about. Well, that's why we're hoping
2: you know we can cut down the size of the deliverable, and then hopefully right. authors can leverage the fact that they've probably already given a talk or you know at least have notes on the topic, so then that cuts down on prep time too. So we don't we don't want the production side to be too daunting.
0: Right. And I think there's a lot of things you can do there for sure. The comment was more aimed at the fact that um, when you see something polished, right, there's there's oh, a yeah. difference, right? Like that you have to, that you, like, it's, you know, it's one thing to aim <laughs> a camera <laughs> like that keeps tipping over at, you know, somebody standing at the front of a room full of people and hopefully you can hear them in whatever, <laughs> versus, oh, yeah, I can make out what all this is, and there's like bookmarks yeah, or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Cool. Um, awesome! Yeah, that's great. I'm actually super excited to, to check that out. I'm, I'm looking forward to to seeing what, uh, what what you guys have to offer. I think uh, the, I mean, one of the reasons I go to Strange Loop is exactly what you're talking about is like, just a world full of cool stuff. And quite frankly, I'm not aware of a lot of it. And just being around like people who are essentially a list of what's what's yeah. exciting is awesome.
2: Yeah, it's, I think it's super cool that in our profession you can meet like. Like at at one strange I had the chance to meet uh, Chuck Moore, which was like one of the formative experiences in my computing uh, adventure, you know, meeting Chuck Moore. Holy cow, this is, you know, one of the names in computers and will be forever. uh, And the fact that, you know, our our profession is small enough and that the, (laughs) you know, celebrities are usually um, friendly enough that you can, you know, you can really... You can meet really cool people and hear about really cool ideas. I wonder if Larry Wall was there. I don't think he was, but he he gave that talk that you linked me to at some other conference recently. And that yes. I ended up watching was really awesome too. But yeah,
0: cool. All right, um, awesome. Anything else that we should make sure to get to, Misha? You have
1: anything you wanted to share? Uh, well, I mean, I have like a little reflection on boot. Or are we past that time? Oh no! No, okay. it's all good. Yeah, yeah. So one thing that I think is uh, good about it is maybe that it exposes the Java primitive, the 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 JVM primitives to you uh, in kind of a direct way. Like the you know when you you make a palm.xml separately from the rest of the packaging, and what I think is good about this is like I'm not a big fan of Java the language, but You know, looking at Java Util Concurrent, that's like, you know, for me, that was like a computer science education and, you know, the way Maven is is engineered, I mean, it was great that I knew that like when I started working on Node.js stuff because then I was like in NPM land and I could see exactly why things were not going well, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think like for beginners, like they might see, um, be exposed to a lot of the JVM things. But I think that that's actually good because the JVM, the parts that we have to deal with at least in Clojure, are super well engineered. I mean, you know, if you need to get stuff done reliably and people are depending on you, you can't go wrong with, you know, with all those things. And I think Boot exposes it to you, which lets you learn about them in kind of a friendly way. And we definitely, yeah.
2: so clo- the JVM and the Java language are very conservative and um, well thought out approaches to managing change and improvement in their APIs. Clojure, of course, does a spectacular job of basically never removing things. Just, you know, they, things will be added to the closure language, but things are never removed. It's an extremely stable um, runtime environment. And then we kind of try to do the same thing with boot. We haven't had a breaking boot in two-ish years, year and a half. Basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge goal of ours to not introduce breaking changes to boot because we have dozens of services that are boot-based that we would like to upgrade periodically and we do not want to suffer for. Um, so, yeah, the whole stack, I think, is, like Misha says, can be daunting, but once you learn it, you'll know it for a long time and it'll it'll give you the ability to look at other systems to work with other systems uh, within, in a new and powerful light, for sure. I totally just
1: hijacked your... Your moment. No, I'm in agreement, dude. Oh, okay.
2: All right. I felt like I was kind of swooped
1: in. (laughs) No, that's what I was going to say. Okay, cool.
0: Cool. All right. Well, that sounds like as good a place to um, wrap up as any. Uh, Assuming you agree, uh, then, Alan, I will throw it to you for our final question, the one we always ask at the end of the show. Uh, We ask our guest or guests, uh, to give us a piece of advice, um, this can be of any any form that they uh, prefer. Uh, whether it's advice that you've been given or that you like to give, and I often throw in the the addendum. It could be good advice or bad advice. <laughs> I don't think I've had anybody take me up on the bad advice one yet. But uh, what do you uh, have for Well, this?
2: so I found this really challenging because I have a I have a conflicted. I'm conflicted about the the very nature of giving and taking advice. Uh, I don't know, I, I, I look at a lot of things, and I, I see someone got very lucky, and it seems like the luckier someone is, the more freely they give advice, but like what does their advice mean? You know, they're basically, it's like, you know, getting number suggestions for the lottery from a lottery winner. Is that going to help you? Is that meaningful to you, maybe? Um, so I, I racked my brain for like, okay, this is like a computer podcast. What are some, <laughs> who are the lottery winners? And Give what, advice
1: I, on being tall. <laughs> Tell people how to be tall. Yeah. You, you obviously <laughs> know the secret.
2: I,
0: I have a bit of advice about sure. being tall. Can I inject it? So, uh, you know, I, I am myself nothing like your height, Alan, but I always, I always wanted to be taller just so I could use this line where someone walks up to you and I'm sure you've had someone ask you, oh, do you play basketball? And, and I always wanted to be tall enough to get that question so I could respond, no, do you play mini-golf? <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you'll use oh. that sometime. Um, anyway, but back to your, oh, your yeah.
1: advice.
2: I, I'll figure maybe I, I need to get a Google Glass or something so I can record that moment and, and send it to you because I do get asked that question a <laughs> couple times a year. Um, so anyway, I racked my brain for, you know, like what, are some, what is some advice that I've really, you know, taken to heart or has, you know, really paid off for me. And um, then I thought, well, you know, in Matthew 25, Jesus' parable of the talents, you know, is that the direction we want to go with this, you know, go religious with it? And I thought,
1: well, probably no, it
2: needs to be like a computer thing. So I thought, um, well, you know, it's really dumb, but one of the best pieces of advice ever was given to me by my drill sergeant in basic training, which was, if you're going to do something important tomorrow. Get everything ready the night before. (laughs) Which is, uh, you know, that's something that never really came naturally to me, Um, preparing for things that are important. But it's a very simple thing, basically, especially if it's going to be early in the morning. You know, it's very simple. You just lay out the clothes you're going to change it to. Or, you know, if you have a test, you study for it. Um, (laughs) A very simple piece of advice, but I feel like I I personally, you know, I was never good at preparing for things because I just had great faith that it's going to work out for me every time. (laughs) But uh you know that was a piece of advice that I reflect on sometimes and I think is uh it's very simple and good. Be prepared for things that are happening tomorrow.
0: Well, we're all closurists, we like simple and that does not, as we are well aware, uh something being simple does not uh, prevent it from being uh correct, profound, or any one of another other uh any one of a number of other desirable qualities. So I definitely appreciate the advice. And as a father of two smallest children, <laughs> um you know Things like that need to be said to you at some point in your life. Like it's not obvious like automatically, so I'll have, to, I'll have to maybe bring that what I want. Yeah. Well, one. I guess as a
2: new father, I can say it's definitely paid off too with you know, bottle prep and clothing prep. There's a lot of costume
1: changes yeah. when you're two months old. You waited until the night before to prepare for your kid? <laughs>
2: yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Laid out some clothes and yeah. ready, done. Well,
2: you know, what is it? Amazon, <laughs> there was Amazon Prime, but now there's Amazon, what is the hourly one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like just in time. <laughs> I need a crib. I need a box of diapers. <laughs>
0: Stat. Yeah. You just install Amazon Echo or whatever it's called—the the thing <laughs> that listens and it it hears you swearing, and the next thing there's a knock on your door with a bunch of diapers or whatever. Oh, you the need button. Around. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, all right. We've degenerated <laughs> into puns and computer jokes, but I I uh, I do appreciate it. advice. Is very good, and I, I thank sure. you for sharing it with us. I love the fact that it came from a drill sergeant, that, that just Yeah, his crazy. version of it
2: was a little more obscene, so I toned it down, <laughs> but...
0: I <laughs> appreciate that, I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, I'm, I'm converting it yeah. back in my head right yeah. now, but it's I won't share it. it. Um, anyway, like I said, you know, like, so clearly people know that, you know, uh, I, that I've worked with you a lot, Alan, you've worked with Misha a lot, Misha and I have hung out a bit, so rather than uh, make people listen to our idle banter for the next 45 minutes, I'm gonna wrap it up there, but I will stop to thank you both very much for coming on. I really genuinely uh, enjoyed the conversation, learned a lot, been really—I mean, thanks for the tools too, by the way. I really have been uh, digging using this stuff. It's been—it's been. I mean, a change is always fun, but I've also found it productive and and useful and enabling. So, thanks on both. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, really fun to be here. Yeah. Cool. All right, I will wrap it up there. Then this has been the Cognicast. Bye. Cool. Thanks. You have been listening to The CogniCast. The CogniCast is a production of Cognitech, Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, Clojure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to The CogniCast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web cognitech.com slash podcast you can contact the show by tweeting at cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com our guests today were alan Dipert on twitter at alan dipert a-l-a-n-d-i-p-e-r-t and misha niskin on twitter at m-i-c-h-a-n-i-s-k-i-n episode cover art is by michael parento audio production by russ olson and damian mack The CogniCast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.